Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You can get in and out of names and, and you can you know, admit your mistakes or recognise that the facts have changed and therefore you, you can get back involved in, in, in names. So it's, nothing's absolute. Hello and welcome to the In For A Penny podcast. I'm Mark Schoffman, a freelance personal finance journalist, and I'm joined by my financial planner friend, Joshua Gersler, who runs an advisory business called The Orchard Practice. Hello. If you'd like to know a little bit more about us, you can check me out at www.cavendishcontent.com and josh at www.topfs.co.uk. Each episode, we aim to give our perspective on the world of finance and money, and discuss some of the issues that crop up in business as well as everyday life. We hope that you'll learn something from our podcast as well as have some fun too. Hit the subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. So we're joined today by Ben Russon, who's Vice President and Portfolio Manager of Franklin Templeton. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Uh, Hi there. Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Good. It's a pleasure to have you. So we've invited Ben to join us today because we wanted to hear from a fund manager to try and find out what goes on behind the scenes and what they're really doing with our money. So uh, we're going to ask you some questions today, Ben. We'll hopefully be gentle and hopefully our listeners will learn a lot. Mark, you want to take it away? Yeah. So thanks for joining us, Ben. Um, I do have an interest in this as well, because as well as as being a personal finance journalist, I have money that um, Josh helps manage for me through his advisory firm and then some of it maybe goes to some Franklin Templeton funds through OpenWorks. So you may well have my um, daughter's university fund in your pocket. That's no pressure. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to grow you. Where's my money? Uh, so, it would, so obviously I'm interested in how all that's going. So let's start with um, you. So you run a UK fund. And how, how do you sort of determine which companies to, to invest in? Yeah, we obviously we are a, a, a team of UK specialists, and obviously it's not just myself. You know, I've um, several colleagues alongside me, and we kind of cover off the whole UK market, obviously from you know, small, mid, large cap, and income funds, etc. And so we do run a, a variety of mandates depending on the individual client needs. Um, but for, yeah, for the, for the mainline product, which um, to which you re, you refer that your your daughter's um, exposed to, obviously to a greater or lesser extent, any UK fund is benchmarked against the, the wider UK index. Um, so to a certain extent, that becomes the starting point for if you're going to construct a UK portfolio, this is the UK average. If you, if you bought a tracker fund, this is what you'd be exposed to. Um, but obviously, we as active managers, obviously, we don't want to replicate the index. We want to impose our own views and, and, and thoughts on where we think the uh, the opportunities are, which areas we want to avoid. And therefore, you, you, you go through a process of, of being what we call overweight certain areas, underweight certain areas, you, you avoid certain stocks, you, you add more into, into certain stocks that you like. And, and so that's the kind of, your, your starting point really is is how far you are prepared to deviate from from the benchmark uh, in order to really reflect the uh, the conviction of your ideas and some of the, some of the strengths you have on both a, a positive and negative tack in terms of having big positions in, in the names you like and, and obviously not owning at all the names that you and the themes that you dislike. So if I went and downloaded your fact sheet now, what would be the kind of top 10 holdings in there or some of the main holdings? So by size, you would see some of the typical large companies that we have 
in the UK markets, you would you know you'd see the, the big oil names, you'd see the big pharma names, you'd see some of the big insurer names, because they are big companies and you know therefore they make up a big part of the market. And therefore, if you if you're going to hold those names, you'd have big positions in them. But that's you get into the the nuances of, of of active money now in terms of some of our higher conviction ideas would be um, sm- smaller holdings in an absolute sense, but obviously more active money. So because they're smaller companies, because we've got bigger positions in smaller companies, that's where you know that's our biggest point of deviation from the the market average. So you know, you, you see some of the some of our higher conviction names further down the market cap scale. So I was trying to find some really interesting growth stories in in the in the mid cap arena in some of the smaller companies in the UK market where we can put high conviction positions and, and hopefully as those companies grow and deliver on their expectations, then the share price responds to that and that's what really drives the outperformance of, of the portfolio. So if we strip it back, um, because most of our listeners will be um, new or inexperienced investors as opposed to high end, how do you actually find out about a company and then research and analyze it so you 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 spoke about deviating from the main markets which which is fair enough but does someone just knock on your door and say oh i've i run this business um so and so limited we think you should invest in us or does one of your team read an article in a paper or have a beer with someone how do you find out about businesses to invest in well yes it's obviously there's obviously quite a process behind it i mean it obviously starts big picture macro view so you have a view of where you think the world is going and how you think you know, the economy is going to unfold and how you think stock market's going to behave um, in response to that and that determines whether you want to have more towards cyclical areas of the economy or more defensive areas or more financials or more oil exposure or more dollar exposure you know that's kind of how your themes play through that and so then when you decide on those kind of broad thematic positions you drill down and think right i want to own some names in in UK retail, um, also you can look and see which UK retail are, are, are obviously listed on the UK market, and then obviously then you can take a view on which you think are good value, paying a good yield, have good growth prospects, have a management team that you like, um, you know, you have an interesting um, store rollout opportunities. There are obviously various then different ways of playing. AC, you know, retail can take, take you into um, you know housing related, clothing related. Um, you know, food retails, there's lots of obviously different variations on that, on any kind of sub theme you pick into. So that's kind of how you, you obviously you have your, your top down view of where you want to be exposed. And then you kind of drill that down into your obviously stock specific knowledge. Uh, and that's, and that's where the hard work comes in, in terms of meeting with the companies, looking at their financials and reading the financial statements, taking a view of what the shares are worth now and what you think they could be worth several years hence obviously that's kind of what you're trying to do is find the companies that have you know got a, a, a growth franchise and you know can, can deliver on, on earnings expectations and and see the share price respond accordingly so that's kind of that's the the, uh, the meat and drink of what we do really is kind of sifting through the the uk market and and trying to find what we think are interesting opportunities or, or misvaluations where we have an opportunity to uh, to uh, take the share price ben, t- tell us a bit about the meetings that you might have with a company so if if I was going to invest in a, a big company, I picked up the phone. They probably wouldn't ar- arrange for me to meet with them. So, tell us what no. goes on in these meetings. What type of things are you asking? Well, it's typically post 
results. So it's typically every six months after the interims, after the final results, they will obviously present their financial results to the city. They you know published, and they'll have a, a a broad webcast where they discuss the you know the the the, the, the year just gone, if you like, and, and walk everyone through the financials. And then after that, they will go on a roadshow and make themselves available to both shareholders and non-shareholders um, and, and have a series of one-to-one meetings and group meetings and, and, and video calls such as this. And obviously, increasingly over the past 18 months, there's been a lot of vir- virtual meetings such as this. And that's where you just get a direct Q&A. So rather than sticking to their script of what they want to tell you, you get a chance as an investor, as a sh- you know, shareholder, a potential shareholder, to actually try and dig again behind their, you know, obviously, they present the numbers as they want you to interpret them. This is your chance to kind of really dig into what they've been telling you and really try and probe um, what's been going on in the business, what opportunities do they see going forward, how do they see things, you know, um, panning out for themselves. And, and that's, yeah, you, so you can get into really good dialogue. And that could be with the chief exec, it could be with the finance director, it could be with the um, someone from the investor relations team. Um, it, it, it varies by, by corporate, but you, you just get you know, a really good chance to ask the questions that you want to ask and hope to get a, a deeper understanding of, of what the drivers are of the business, what the potential is going forward. And, and again, you can feed that into your into your modelling, into your valuation thoughts, into your, 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 what you think the company's prospects might, uh, might might be moving forward. And you mentioned that the fund will hold some of the big names that everyone would have heard of in kind of oil companies and um, I don't know, banks. Uh, are there any sort of unsung companies that you're proud of that you've dug into that you could name and, and kind of explain how you investigated them? Yeah, so if you, I mean, if you go down the market cap scale into some of the smaller names, um, we yeah we have, have plenty of well, I don't know if they're, if they're unsung necessarily, but uh, they are. If, as you go beneath the the, uh, the foot to one hundred names and into the two fifty, what's called the you know the mid cap, the second tier of the UK market, that's where we have some quite interesting interesting plays on a variety of themes. So um, you look at a company like uh, we've got positioning in Cranswick, which is obviously not a household name, but it's, you know the very big um, pork. Um, and chicken um, food processing business. Um, so, as I say, they, they, they obviously do sell through all the main um, food retailers and all the kind of have very good distribution businesses, a lot of the main UK retail space. So, they're not known for their brand. They obviously sell through the, the, uh, the retail brands. But, really strong position in the UK market, a really good British company that's you know, been growing very successfully, now taking that success into chicken as well, so moving into different proteins, if you like, and selling uh, and, and, and trying to replicate the success in that area. But it's a good example of a, of a good business in a, in a good market position. So a lot of their competitors in this space are not in a good financial position, don't have as, as a, a, an estate as, as, as well invested as, as what Kranz would have, um, and therefore struggle to compete on price and certainly struggle to compete on, on quality. And, and now there's obviously wider issues in terms of uh, provenance, you know, having the you know be able to prove whether you know the, through the entire food food chain of where, where the where the food has come from, sustainability. You know, doing a lot of work. obviously consumers are very keen now to to to, to buy products that have um, obviously a very credible, sustainable angle to them, etc. And, and Kranzberg are very much amongst their competitors. They are very much at the leading edge of all these trends. So it just puts them in a really strong position to drive their business forward. And they kind of demonstrated that year after year after year in terms of just you know increasing their sales line, as I say, expanding their product reach, expanding the number of retailers that they move um, they move their products through. So to, um, to add a bit of flavour to that, excuse the pun on the food uh, the food yeah. business. But what, what to, to, so people can understand a bit, what um, 
price did those did those get poured into the fund at? So how much would would you have paid when you first came across the business like that? Well, in absolute share price terms, or in terms of valuation? Yeah, like a, sh- a share price. Oh, uh, I mean, we've owned Cranswick on and off um, for years now. So it's, yeah, it's it, 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 you know we we would have bought it a, a couple of years ago, and the shares would have been. Um, I, I couldn't tell you exactly to be fair, to be fair, but it, you know we would have made them a decent return over the past three years that the fund has been in position. But then we've held it prior to the, the, the um, taking on the, the client that you know the Omnis client that we're discussing. So it's, it's, it's the sort of name that if you look at of our uh, on our ownership journey in terms of when we first got involved with the name that it would have yeah um, double trebled in, in that kind of period. So you you mentioned that you've owned it on and off. So. Um, to, to me, to the layman, that means you've bought it, you've sold it, you've bought it, you've sold it, depending on on what your views were. And and that's when you use an, an active fund manager, you're hoping that the fund manager is is making the right decisions as to when to buy and when to sell. So what type of things, you've bought a business because you think there's good prospects, what might make yeah. you then sell it and potentially want to buy it back at another time? Yeah, I mean... You, it- you're right, and, and obviously the, the ideal investment is is the so-called one decision stock, where you just buy it and 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 hold it forever. And you know, we have examples of you know multi-year holdings of, of of several names, but sometimes valuations get ahead of themselves. Sometimes you you have a more cautious view on the outlook for certain subsectors. Sometimes you know something like Cranswick, obviously playing a very specific vertical, so you have intermittently there's concerns about. Um, um, in fact, you know, kind of, you have disease outbreaks in, in the in the pork food chain. They can give you concerns, etc. So you, there are sometimes specific reasons why you are cautious on a name. But equally, valuations can get ahead of themselves. And you think, well, like, you know, it's a good company. I really like their prospects, but the share price or so the valuation is now at quite a high level. And you know, there is the possibility for a, for a, a pullback. And that's also, you know, as an active manager, that's when you start taking money off the table and, and start to and reducing your position and, and and hopefully if you're right in that assessment then the share price will will come back and that's your chance to kind of get back involved um, how how much are you thinking what's your, what's your sort of time horizon though when you're investing in a company are you still aiming to so, hold for the yeah so we, we obviously try and take a multi multi-year view all our analysis is, is on a multi-year view and then take, yeah, try and look to because the problem with Equities in 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 general, is, you can get very short term and can get you can get kind of very focused on the on the on the day to day, and yeah, as to what drives the share price on a kind of short term view, there's any number of factors within that. But if you take a step back and look on a multi year view, and as I say, when you're having conversations with management about what their plans are to open new plants, to kind of you know um, increase capacity to fulfil you know, future demand, etc., you, you can take a, a, a much broader view on the, on the direction of travel of the company, and then looking. Two years out, say, I think, well, actually, the share price looks quite fully valued now. But if they can deliver on that growth, you know, the, the earnings will increase at rate X, and that means on a two-year view, the shares could still be um, very, very attractively valued, and that's that gives you the uh, the potential to, to hold on to these names and just you know allow the shares effectively to grow into their valuation. And just um, we'll move on from chicken and pork uh, eventually, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, just because at the moment we're uh, in the midst of a, a supply chain crisis and a prospect of no pigs in blankets at Christmas, which won't really affect Josh and I because we're Jewish and celebrate Hanukkah. But um, how much do like there's this and there's the energy crisis and a prospect of rising inflation? What how much do those influence your decisions at the moment when managing a UK active fund? Yeah, it, it. I mean, it's obviously is a, is a factor, and you are mindful of that, and and you attempt to kind of focus 
significant factor that into your considerations. Um, but again, it's, it's trying to take a longer term view. So a lot, a lot of these um, it, these impacts are relatively short term. Hopefully, look, take the carbon dioxide crisis that we faced. If you forget before this latest fuel crisis, I think the carbon dioxide crisis. And uh, you know, at the time, it's obviously far reaching and it a big impact on on food producers like Cranswick and their ability to uh, um, humanely. Um, um, process there, the, the pigs, etc. Um, but it was re resolved within, a, you know, hopefully, you know, resolved in a relatively short time frame, and and, and then it, you know, so therefore it hasn't been an impact on the you know, prospects for their business. So it's it's you, it's trying to take judgment as to whether it's a, sh a short term or a long term impact, or whether it's genuinely going to impact their earnings, or whether you know whether the market's going to look through and 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 take the long term view. And what about Brexit? How much has that worried you? Historically, so, and yeah, so Brexit, Brexit was an overhang for yeah a good four years of of what we were yeah it, it, that's when, it, that 2016 to 2020 period. I spent an awful lot of time talking about Brexit, and obviously since then spent an awful lot of time talking about the pandemic. Um, but yeah, Brexit was a because just because it 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 caused there was a kind of an asymmetric risk to UK equities and certainly to the year to the. To the, uh, to the currency and, and investing in, in the UK space in the broadest sense. So investors were rightly cautious about investing in the UK market um, because often there was, you know, there's this, this kind of catastrophic, chaotic exit from the European Union and, and kind of this, this kind of you know, fear that the UK economy could be plunged into chaos. Um, and that, as, as I say, that did overhang market for, you know, from the vote all the way through to really the back end of, of, of 2009. We finally got through. The, the, the Conservatives got through their, uh, their political instability. And finally, got a deal signed, and, and so on and so forth. So it was a it was a big overhang that um, uh, yes, that cast its shadow across the, the UK market for several years. I, I always find um, when I meet people, whether it's friends, family, clients, they always like to tell you about great investment decisions that they've made and ones where they've made <laughs> yeah. lots of money same, yeah same with gambling as well isn't it yeah, yeah exactly. the, the winning bets that's right yeah, but yeah. You, you never hear about for some reason no one's ever lost any money what <laughs> what's the sort of uh worst decision you could think of you've made within the fund that, that you wish you never made oh yeah well as, as you say obviously you get things wrong and, and particularly in fund management because we, you know we are dealing in unknowns and we're obviously dealing in in the future if you like so it's, it's yeah it's, it's not really credible to sit there we don't get anything wrong and so we do obviously get lots of things wrong and and uh, ultimately our performance is the uh, is the balance between the things we get right and the things we get wrong so yeah there's I could just, you know we could, we could talk all day about the uh, the errors but it depends whether they are um timing errors in terms of you know we've been wrong in the short term but in the long term, we may be proved right, or whether we fundamentally got things wrong and we made a mistake, and we have to kind of reverse our position and, and sell out. So that's the, the kind of um, the differentiation. So, uh, I mean, thinking in recent history, there haven't been any um, in. Well, I guess yeah. I guess the one that was most difficult of of recent times was our position in Carnival Corporation, which is the cruise ship operator, um, which we were acquiring. <laughs> unfortunately just at the start of 2020 so i mean you say timing is everything but obviously we, we hadn't quite anticipated the uh, the pandemic nor the uh, the global nature of, of, of such and obviously yeah obviously you, 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 we know the what's happened you know also the impact that's had on, on that entire industry and still having on that entire industry so that was the yeah probably the, the most recent really painful investment decision we've made 
And what what did you do in that that example? Did, have you sold out? Or have you? So we sold out. Uh, yeah. I, uh, again, without getting kind of drawn in, in too too deep into the kind of the uh, the technicals or investment process, we don't get involved in companies that have too much leverage, too highly geared, you know, too much debt on the balance sheet. And at the time of of of, of purchase, it did have leverage because they were investing in new fleets and and, and building out their, their their fleet for the future growth of their industry. But obviously. The events of, of you know effectively haven't been sailing for the past eighteen months is obviously you know obviously devastating impact on their finance. They've had to raise additional debt. They've had to raise additional um, equity. But it's just meant it's become an even more leveraged name to the extent that now it's it's, it's more leveraged than we'd ever want to hold in our portfolio in terms of as an equity holder. You'd be a very volatile ride just being thrown around by the you know very small movements in in, in the balance sheet etc. So that we you know we we took the painful decision to sell, but obviously it was a, yeah it was a, wasn't a, a a very comfortable trade for us. Are there any um, holdings that you sold and then later regretted it? Nothing springs to mind um, because you can as in there's no. You, obviously, you, get, you can get back involved in names. So if, if you sell out a name on valuation and then and then they win a new contract or something, you know, the facts change, and therefore you, you know you're allowed to change your view to this point that you know I say you, you might have sold too early, or you, you, you can get in, back involved in names. So it's it's nothing's absolute. It's you know the whole investing. You can get in and out of names, and and you can you know admit your mistakes or recognize that the facts have changed and therefore you, you can get back involved in, in names. So nothing's absolute. Who's got a dog barking there? Sorry, yeah, he's got some questions. I'll ask for him because he can't speak English. <laughs> yeah. um, what would you say are the benefits of investing in the UK market through an active fund such as yours rather than a passive, rather than an ETF or a tracker? Yeah, well, obviously, as, a, as an active investor, we would seek to and, and, and attempt to, to give you a superior return to that of the benchmark. If you invest in a tracker, you pay a lower fee, um, but you know your, your best case is something close to the benchmark return. Obviously, we as active managers seek to provide a return in excess of that, um, and and therefore, the, the, the you obviously pay a larger fee for active management, but that hopefully that fee is offset by the by the outperformance of, of the benchmark, and obviously the compounding of that through time. You know, if you take a you know if you outperform by even one or two percentage points, you know, on an annual basis, you compound that over over a long period of time. It can make a significant deviation in your long-term returns. And do your funds um, outperform the benchmark? Yes, they do. Yes, obviously, yeah. Good. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the issues I, I've had with with Josh, not with Josh, but we've spoken previously, and I've looked at because I also have a portfolio of ETFs with. Um, Nutmeg, I think I can name because it's my own yep, podcast, yeah, yeah. Um, and that did obviously very has done very well since uh, the rally since since the obviously went down at the start of the pandemic and then rallied and did well. And I don't know, I'm quite interested in if people have done better in an active fund during the pandemic or if the passive has just has done just as well because everything's rallied. Yeah, I mean, it, it obviously totally depends on. Which point you measure from, and which fund you're exposed to, and there will be obviously actors that have outperformed, actors that have underperformed. So it totally depends on, on you know, where you are exposed and what you're benchmarking against. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's yes, yeah, it's, 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 there's, there's no one answer to that. But yeah, obviously, as, as a rule, obviously, and particularly on a longer time period, obviously, active management is, is obviously seeking to to outperform the average. And, and Mark, I've I've pulled up on my screen the the fun fact sheets for the two. 
UK funds that Franklin Templeton managed for on this. So I've got here the UK All Companies Fund and the UK Smaller yeah. Companies Fund. And these fact sheets yeah. are, are August, um, August 21. But it shows that the um, All Companies Fund over one year has returned 24.44%, just below the benchmark of 26.95%. The smaller companies' funds, it says, has returned 67.42% wow. above the benchmark of 49.3%. So um goes to the point that Ben just mentioned and that we've always said in the past, you could pick any time frame and it can flatter or or not, depending on what you choose. Obviously, if you've always underperformed, you're always going to underperform, but time frames are very important when you look at it. Yeah, and you should—I mean—you should be just testing on the, like uh, yeah, on a three, five-year view, not a not a three, six-month view. Is would 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 you know would, would be um, my view as well. And so, how, how do you decide what you are what to charge? Because obviously, charges do vary across different managers. Yeah, I mean, clearly, it's obviously a, a commercial decision that's um, out, out with my, um, my out with my control. But it, it's it's a function of, I guess, the industry norms, which you know obviously allows. Everyone to make a sufficient margin to run their businesses. So it's, it's a very competitive market, uh, and fees have been on a downward trajectory as long you know, as long as I've I've been in, involved the past twenty years. Fees have only have ever gone one way, um, and it's yeah. It's, it, in certain extent, it's a scale business. So the larger the, the fund, the lower the fee. So you're talking about the Omnis fund because it's such a large portfolio. You can you, you can charge a, a, a very competitive fee. Because um, um, of the scale of advantages of, of the business, and, and the fees um, on these, Mark, just to give you an idea, the UK All Companies Fund on the fund fact sheet has an ongoing charges figure of 0.65 percent, whereas the smaller companies fund has an ongoing charges figure of 0.76 percent. So slightly expensive. Ben, apart from scale, what might be a reason that you you would charge more in a smaller companies fund than an all companies fund? It's because we obviously, uh, because by definition, small cap is, is, is uh, you you haven't got the same um, ability to scale your business. So, you know, we have, we have a finite capacity to run small cap money, just because by definition, they are smaller companies you're investing in. So we need to price that accordingly to, to obviously effectively to, to ration uh, our ability to, to offer that to our clients. Whereas if you go to the oil company space, into the, into the FTSE 100 large cap space, it's much more scalable because you're investing in very large liquid companies. So you, you, you're able to manage much, much larger pots of money uh, without running into liquidity constraints. Whereas in, in the small cap end of things, there's only so much money we can put to work effectively in, in that end of the market before you start owning too much of the individual individual companies, you, you know, before you have the, you know, you lose your ability to trade in and out of of, of companies, etc. So, so that, we're saying the price you, is higher to discourage people putting money in, so you don't end up with too well, much money. It's, it's more that we, as as a fund management house, obviously need to effectively ration our exposure to that space because you know, effectively, we can charge a premium because it's 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 a it's a, it's a less scalable business. You know. Okay, shall we move on to our personal questions? Lovely. Yeah, let's move on to the personal questions. Yeah, so we have a section where we just get to know you a little bit better rather than just the fund because, you know, don't let the fund have all the fun. Um, These are just some quick-fire questions. I think there's only three now. I'm sure there used to be more, but times have changed. We're rushing them. We're rushing them. It's the question shortage. (laughs) Um, 
What is the best advice you have been given about money? Um, it's probably, yeah, it's, I guess, take it from my father. My father always said to me, when, when getting to that point of, of buying a house, he was, he was always very much a, a, of the opinion that you should kind of stretch yourselves to the limit and hopefully inflation and career progression will kind of make things a little bit more comfortable through time. And I think, yeah, I, I know, obviously, he was, I mean, yeah, obviously that's, that was the experience born through a different era, but I think it still, yeah, it still resonates with me even now, obviously, when I think back to, yeah, my adulthood and, and going through that, that whole kind of moving up through the property ladder, it's, 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 I think it's very sage advice, really. And the, the when you say stretch yourself to limits, does that mean take out as big a mortgage as possible? Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's his his point was that obviously you know it's, it's going to be yeah uncomfortable at the start in terms of you know but 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 hopefully as as, as you move through the, the 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 adventure of life then it becomes more manageable and 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 yeah obviously effectively if you could do that and avoid having to keep you know the transaction costs of, of continually moving up the housing ladder can, you know, can be a lot of quite, quite expensive can't it with the stamp duty and the like etc so to, if you can avoid multiple hits on that regard is um it's it can be beneficial okay next next one on the list are you a saver or a spender you see i think that depends on whether you're asking me today or 15 years ago or 15 years in the future in terms of i think it depends where you are in 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 the life cycle, doesn't it? Really? I think as well, maybe I'm naturally a spender, but obviously when you're young, I think you should enjoy life and experience as much as you can, and you know, travel and see the world and, and try and uh, um, uh, get as much out of as life as you can. Obviously, that involves spending money. Um, then obviously, when you get into the kind of the mid period period of your life, when you have responsibility and a family and commitments, the mortgage and 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 um, and, and various. Um, drawings on your on your income then obviously you naturally become much more cautious and you go into much more of a saving phase you're obviously more cognizant of putting something away for later in life and provide for your um, um, latter years etc um and then if that's all worked out then obviously in your latter years then you should become a spender again so i, I think I'm, I'm very much in the in the savings um point of my of my, of my life cycle but uh, you know I, i'd hope to become a spender um, um later in life uh, with that, with that in mind, uh, what would you do if you won the lottery? <laughs> um, I've always been of the view that you'd have to take your friends with you. Um, I don't think it's much fun being a, a, a rich playboy and having no one, to, no one to play with, isn't it? So I've, I'd always been of the view that you, you've got to share it out amongst um, people that you want to hang out with. You can all, so you've all got the leisure time and the, uh, the financial resources to. Uh, to, to lead, lead a, a more relaxed existence. So uh, uh, I, I would, yeah, I would. Uh, necessarily, I haven't necessarily drawn up a list of who those people would be, but uh, well, let us know when you're writing it. Yeah. <laughs> and where are you taking them? So you want them with you, so you can live the playboy lifestyle. But where are you taking them? Well, there's, there's no point if, if if all your friends are still working. Then you know, you, you obviously there's no point being a lottery winner sat at home on your own, is there? You obviously need people to to you know, to, to undertake leisure activities with, don't you? So for the for the Franklin Templeton team listening, I think they're onto a winner. They stick with you. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, maybe, yeah. I haven't drawn the list yet. <laughs> well, Ben, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, no problem. Nice, nice to speak. Please remember, anything discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice. But if you do need support, feel free to contact us on Twitter 
you can reach me at Mark Schoffman and Josh at Josh Gersler. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Please leave us a review on your podcasting app that helps people find us and lets us know you're enjoying what you hear. So thank you for being in for a penny. Penny.